This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Tim Noakes, welcome back to the trenches. Thanks, Jim. Lovely to be back with you after a long time. It's been too long, hasn't it? Yeah, we've been in the trenches and not uh, communicating. How is the information war treating you? Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I just get so frustrated, as I know you do, to see supposedly intelligent people talking nonsense and lying and uh, not bothering to check up on the truth of what they're saying. It's, it's very frustrating. And the world accepting because this person is the so-called this or that that they must be correct mm. and i think what really worries me is that the level of education of people is so poor now that they they're just not asking questions and i you know i realized why i went into science because i was doing medicine and in medicine you told what and how this is what the condition is this is how you treat it and i didn't accept that i wanted to know why why do you do this and so you have to do science to understand the why and that's not part of medicine Medicine is not about why, it's just about how, how you do things. And so, you know, obviously I get called a quack, but I, I read the stuff. And when I say something, it's because I've considered the evidence and I've seen all the evidence on both sides. And I've said, well, the majority of evidence or the biology explains that this is what it has to be. It can't be that because the biology doesn't explain that and the evidence doesn't explain. Mm. That. So explain to me how you can say that this is the truth when it's clearly unbiological or it, it, it can't be that way but so can't, I think that's, that's can't, accus can't the accusation be leveled against you saying that okay well you're just looking for confirmation bias no because I look at everything you know I'm currently writing a paper and we'll discuss this about what mm -hmm. limits exercise performance is it the muscles or is it the liver and you know I, I, I go through literally hundreds of papers yesterday I spent the whole day going through the literature of an area that that is novel that they hadn't been i wasn't aware of this research so i started for example studying carbohydrate metabolism during exercise in the 1980s i know the complete history up to the 1980s but i didn't know the most recent 2017 18 19 20 and i found that there's a whole lot of new research there so i've spent as i was saying i spent the last uh, day or two going through all this new information and that's the beauty now that it's all accessible on the internet. Mm. So I can sit here in my office and get all this information. And I probably downloaded 30, 40 new articles and I integrate them in. And then, <laughs> then I read the people who are arguing against me and they say, they find one paper that confirms their bias. And so they say, that's it. And I've got 50 papers which prove that that is bias. And so I'm the quack for presenting the 50 papers. And they're not the cracks for presenting the one paper. Well, you, as you and I are talking, I'm drinking freshly ground coffee with cream. Is that a good start to the day? Absolutely. I like the cream. Yeah. <laughs> cream <laughs> is low carb so that's, uh, and high fat, which is obviously very, very good. Tim, for those who don't know your background, you're one of the highest rated sports scientists in the world. Would you mind giving me just a, a bit of a bio? So, I, so I, I graduated in medicine in 1974, and then I did my internship in 1975, and I realized that I, wasn't, that I wasn't good at clinical medicine. I was much more interested in preventing disease rather than treating it. And I understand, wanted to understand why. So I went into science, and I did my PhD in medicine. That's an MD. 
and then I started the sports science course in South Africa and I really started sports medicine in this country. And I did that right up to 2014 when I retired. Now, my career was going fantastically until 2011 when I discovered the low carbohydrate diet and I reversed from saying that you should eat high carbohydrate diets to saying the opposite, you should eat a high fat diet. So what I'd been teaching for 33 years, I realized was completely wrong. All that had happened in that 33 years is I developed type 2 diabetes from eating this high carbohydrate diet, but despite the fact that I did all the exercise in the world. So when I converted, the profession took me on and decided that I was dangerous because I was saying that a low carbohydrate diet can cure most of the chronic diseases that we currently face from hypertension to cancer and not so it can't cure cancer, but it may help in preventing the development of cancer. But it can reverse uh, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and so on. Mm. And so I started writing this, and I wrote a book in 2012 uh, called The Real Meal Revolution. And that sold, uh, it was a really big seller, and it was number one book in South Africa for that year. And that really caused me problems because my profession said that I was claiming things which were not proven. In, in fact, they were, and now we know they were. And everything I wrote there has subsequently been proved to be correct. But I was excommunicated. I lost all my funding. And fortunately, it happened right at the end of my career. So I could retire and go and do other stuff. So, so that's what happened to me. So from being one of the top scientists in South Africa, an A1-rated scientist, I was suddenly publicly humiliated by my university and by my profession. I had to go to court to save my, my career and my credibility. And I was in court for 28 days over four years. And eventually, we won the case hands down because... The people we were dealing with have absolutely no clue about the science. And these are the people who are directing nutritional mm. advice and teaching in South Africa. They have not the first clue. They don't read anything. They've just been handed on a script, and that's what they hand on to other people. What and was the court case about? The court case was about a tweet that I advised a mother. Sorry, I didn't advise a mother. That, that's the important point. I gave general information mm. that it's very good to, to, to wean your child onto a high-fat, high-protein diet, which humans have been doing for millions of years, and which are the direct South African dietary guidelines and the world guidelines. They all say that. And particularly in a country like Africa, where you've got stunting, and the stunting is in part because children are being weaned onto high-carbohydrate diets. And we now know that if you're wealthy and you wean your child on the high-carbohydrate diet, you're setting that child up for diabetes and obesity in the long term. So it's not a matter of whether you're wealthy or not. It's the worst thing to do is to wean onto a high-carbohydrate grain-based diet. So anyway, I had to present the evidence against the person who had written the South African Dietary Guidelines. The South African Dietary Guidelines, which say I was right, I had to debate with her to, to show she was wrong. But she didn't bring any evidence at all. And their case crumbled, and they just had to keep it going I think probably to make sure I have to pay a lot of money to keep to stay in court. But their case crumbled on the first day and they just kept it going and going and going. And ultimately, we gave nine days of, sorry, in fact, 12 days of evidence compared to their one paper. They produced one scientific paper. We pre prepared 7,000 pages and we flew, in, <laughs> we flew in three world authorities to give evidence. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then we wrote the book, The real food on trial which which i know you have a copy of mm. and that's the whole story of what happened but that that this is the story 
Thank you. Thank you very much. But this is the story of what the profession did to me. And although I'm right, has anyone apologized? No. <laughs> Tim, what, when, when we talk about low carb and high carb, what do we mean? Well, I think the diet we refer to is a diet that humans evolved on. And it's eating real foods that comes from the farm not the ultra processed food so the, the problem in our nutrition is that humans evolved over millions of years eating a very high fat high protein diet we used to kill the biggest fattest animals the elephants i mean can you believe it these tiny little humans we were very effective in killing these animals and then of course eventually the fat ran out the elephants were died off and all the other big animals fat animals died off and so then we had to turn to agriculture so we started growing grains and that was in about 18,000 years ago. And then more recently, in the last 100 years, we've gone to this ultra-processed foods, high in sugar, high in grains, and high in uh, refined, refined carbohydrates and oils, particularly the vegetable oils. And that, that's the toxic diet. So we're currently eating a diet for which we were not ever designed. So when we talk about a low-carbohydrate diet, it's simply eating real foods that that come directly from the farm without being ultra processed. And if you're eating, the more of those foods you're eating, the healthier you're going to be. But does that include rice and potatoes? Nope, sorry, that's, that's agriculture. So you want to go back before 18,000 years ago, you've got to get back to the, but if, eating the, the animals. If humans have been eating um, sort of that, that kind of starch, that kind of carbohydrate for so long, are we not adapted to it? I'm sure that there are some adaptations and certainly the people from the, the Middle East and from the grain, where the grains were grown initially uh, in Persia and so on. Yes, those people probably are adapted because they've been eating for 18,000 years and those who couldn't adapt died. So they've, they've got a high heavy selection. But for myself, who comes from the north of England, my parents are from the north of England. We didn't see grains until 5,000 years ago. So it's very unlikely that, that many of us who, who come from Europe have any exposure to grains for any length of time. We're much better adapted to eating high-fat diets. That, that's what I would argue. So I agree, yes, there may be some adaptations. But these adaptations take, gener take millions, of, thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. They don't happen within, within a few, few generations. So... Let's 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 go to the basics here. Uh, so a low low carbohydrate diet um, is essentially eating less or or trying to avoid as much starch in your in your diet as possible. Um, so that would include pasta, um, potatoes, rice, um, even vegetables. Yeah, no, they're like the leafy vegetables are fine. Uh, it's the vegetables that come from underground. Those are the starchy ones that aren't so, so good. And let's not forget bread. Bread is one of the key drivers. And it looks it's probable that bread is pretty addictive. And I think what I've learned in the last three or four years is that the real problem people have with their nutrition is that they're addicted to sugar and, and certain foods. And so it's, it's typical when we speak about that, people say, oh, I can't avoid my having my bread or I can't have, stop having my Coca-Cola. And that's a sugar carbohydrate addiction. And it's absolutely true that the people who adapt well to this diet are those who get past the sugar addiction. 
So when we advise people to adopt this diet, we say, firstly, you have to get rid of the sugar addiction and the bread addiction and the potato addiction. You've got to get rid of those addictions. And the reason people fail is because they don't understand that. They think I can still have a little bit of these things and I'll be okay. And that's like any addiction. It just keeps it going if you don't, if you don't get rid of it completely. There's no moderation in addiction. That's the point. And sugar is very dangerous. So sugar is probably the initial driver of all these problems, obesity, diabetes, cancer. So before the 1800s, the consumption of sugar was quite low in Britain. And then the taxes changed. And then we had this terrible slave trade and so on. And the sugar consumption just rocketed up. And wheat was available in 1800. And it was quite refined. So the, the health problems really start in the 1900s. So we've got this long period between 1800 and 1900 where humans were still very healthy. The British were incredibly healthy because they were eating food which was cheap, which coming directly from the farm. So the whole population was eating a magnificent diet. That changed as soon as these commercially derived foods, processed foods started coming in, particularly sugar and canned foods. And then the health started to fall. But the, the point is people were eating refined wheat and they weren't getting sick. But you added the sugar, and that's when it went bad. And then in the 1920s, 1930s, we started adding vegetables. So if, you, if you're completely independent, you look at the evidence, it looks simple. It first is sugar, and then it comes the vegetable oils. And so the refined carbohydrates are, are not good for you because they affect your metabolism and so on. But, but it's difficult to say that they're the immediate cause. The immediate cause is much more likely to be sugar and vegetable oils. Is that why our grandparents and their parents were significantly healthier than us? Yeah, the more meat in your diet, the healthier you'll be. It's, it's absolutely as simple as that. And the less sugar and the less refined carbohydrates. And, and it's, it's just so obvious that, that the next generation is getting, every generation is just getting less healthy because they're exposed to this, this ultra-processed food diet from the day they're born. And the well, mothers let's... eat this ultra-processed food during the pregnancy. And that has huge knock-on mm. effects as well. Let's just deal with that meat comment because you're going to get, you're going to get some backlash. Uh, Tim, you're just yeah, a shill sure. for the meat industry. Sure. Well, I'd love to know how I get any money from the meat industry. <laughs> you know, people say, oh, you write books and you say these things. Anyone who writes books knows that you write books and you put the money in. And anyway, mm. I donate all my proceeds from my books to, to various uh, foundations that I support but uh, writing is not a way you make money it might be if you're JK Rowling mm. or someone like that but for the rest of us we invest an enormous amount of time and effort into the books uh, I mean this book the real food on trial we lo I lost a fortune on that book because I spent so much time writing and mm. it didn't sell very many copies and the royalties are trivial anyway the publishers make a bit of money but the writers don't so I'm not a shill for for the for the profession for the meat, I just tell you what the facts are. These are the facts. Well, let's just and stay on that for a moment. Um, yeah. You don't have a vendetta against people who don't eat meat. No, not at all. They're welcome to do so. But, you know, I just see the end results of people who've eaten, avoided meat for their lives. And by the age of 60, of my age, 73, they're not looking so good. And they've lost all their muscle. They're losing their bone. And probably they're losing aspects of their brain because there are nutrients in meat that you don't get in plants. And that's a fact. So 
you can say it's not true and we we should all be eating vegetables to save the save the the world and save the climate but that is going to come at a huge cost because the medical cost no one factors in the medical cost if we made everyone stop eating meat the health is going to impair and we're going to have to provide all the medical services for that as well well the the united nations as you know wants us to stop eating meat by 2030 and they want us to eat bugs yeah tell me about well, bugs, bugs Bugs are great. I mean, the African people have eating bugs for a long time, and they're very healthy. They're full of fat. They're fat low. Really? So yeah, absolutely. So eating <laughs> bugs is brilliant. But, but I, I think you still need to balance your diet up with some meat. Yeah. What bugs so are high in fat? Oh, I, I couldn't tell you which which they are. But they're, that's that's their main constituents. So. That's incredible. So, yeah, Mapani worms. That's the one I got out. Yes, Mapani worms are full of fat and they're, the, and they're delicious. They've been eating those so in Zimbabwe for a long time. Exactly. And uh, mm. and it, it was a reason to, to supplement their diet. But, you know, African people would have eaten meat. And then it's what we did to South African Africans is we forced them to eat uh, maize. That mm. After the 1920s, we forced maize to become the predominant food. And, and maize doesn't arise in Africa. It comes from South America. So what happened in South Africa was that uh, that the rinderpest came through in 1890 and wiped out all the cattle. That was the first problem. And then we, the mine gold was discovered in the Zapatas run. Mm. And there was suddenly a lot of concentration of people living in, in Johannesburg and they had no food. So they had to import maize from Lesotho. And then the South African government in 1910 or so realized that they could build, grow their maize in the, the maize triangle in the northwest. And so that's where maize became the predominant food stuff for South Africans. But it's not the healthiest food for them. And that's where our health problems start is because we made maize the predominant force, well, the it, source of food. Let's talk about that just for a second, Tim. What actually happens biologically when you eat carbohydrates? That's a great question. And, and what I'd like to tell people is if you want to find out whether I'm telling the truth or not, is, is buy rent or buy a continuous glucose monitor. And what this does is it measures your glucose concentrations uh, every minute of the day. And then you can see what foods cause glucose to rise. Now, what happens when glucose rises is glucose is highly toxic to the body. And so the, blood, the, the body secretes this hormone insulin to get the glucose out of the bloodstream and get it stored elsewhere or turned into fat. Notice I said turned into fat. Not into carbohydrate, turned into fat. Where do you get fat from? From carbohydrates, but we'll come back to that. And you put this continuous glucose monitor and you have your breakfast with your orange juice and your cornflakes and then you have a banana and you see your glucose shoot up to 12, 14 millimoles per liter. And that is absolutely disastrous. You want to keep the glucose as low as possible and, and all carbohydrate foods drive your glucose up and you get this seesaw effect. And if you're very sensitive, your glucose will drop too low and then you'll start to get hungry after three hours and you'll want to eat more and you'll see the glucose will go up again and it goes on. So you get this roller coaster. And the human body was not designed for this roller coaster. It's designed to keep the glucose as flat as possible. Because when the glucose goes up, the insulin goes up and the insulin is also highly damaging to, to the body. And many people think that the insulin is driving the cancers and all the other chronic illnesses that we have. So that, that's a simple story. If you want to be healthy, 
the longer you can keep your glucose flat and your insulin flat on a daily basis, the healthier you will be. And you, you have to see it. You have to go, oh, this lovely cornflakes that are so healthy. Mm. Just see what they do to your blood glucose concentration. In contrast, take an egg and some bacon and a sausage and your glucose will just stay like that. Insulin will rise a bit, but the glucose will stay flat. Uh, when you say that, though, you're excluding the toast or the croissant from that breakfast. Yeah, you definitely, absolutely. Those are the addictive ones, and you've got to keep them out as well. So what happens? Yeah. So yeah, yeah okay, toast, so go on. Toast, a piece of toast is enough to shoot your glucose way up. It's what we call a glucose tolerance test. It's we, we, when you go to the doctor and he wants to determine whether you have diabetes, we give you a load of glucose to test whether you're healthy or not. And yet every morning, South Africans and the rest of the world give themselves a glucose tolerance test, which is not to see whether you're healthy, it's to see whether you're diseased. So what you're saying is that if you're going to have a healthy breakfast, um, you know, basically have lots of fat. Oh, and you haven't mentioned protein. Is this the other important variable? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're beginning to realize that we've undervalued the importance of protein. And that I certainly a lot of what I've said, I've said that fat is important because it suppresses your hunger. But protein is probably even more effective at suppressing hunger. So it's not the same for everyone. There are some people like myself, I, I'm more fat makes me lose my, lose my hunger, whereas protein isn't quite as effective. But for other people, eating fat makes them actually become more hungry. And so they have to do something else. And, and the difference is to eat more protein. And as you get older, you need more protein because we're also realizing that one of the keys to longevity is maintaining your muscle mass. You have to keep your muscle mass as high as possible. And you do that by doing high-intensity exercise, which is the opposite of what I used to promote. I used to promote long-distance running or cycling or swimming. Not so. That's fine, but you better add your, your muscle-building weight training and intense exercise and a, and a high-protein diet. That's, that's what gets you through the 70s and the 80s. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, let me try that again. Let's talk a little bit about people like Usain Bolt who are excessively muscular and presumably yeah. eat a high carb diet. Well, Usain Bolt's not one of them. And uh, well, let's just gener generalize. You can tell mm. the, people, the athletes who are eating high carbohydrate diets because they have subcutaneous fat. So that they've, that's where they're storing the excess carbohydrate because they never quite get it right and they always accumulate too much carbohydrate. So they have to store that as fat and they store it as subcutaneous fat. So you can see it. They're not well-defined. The muscles are not well-defined. Usain Bolt is very well-defined muscles. And in fact, he has described that he eats a high-protein diet. I mean, I've seen that. Whether it's true or not, I'm not going to... It doesn't actually matter because... He could eat a high-protein diet and sprint very fast because he will always have enough carbohydrate in his body to keep to allow him to run fast and do his training because he, he's not training very much. He's doing lots of sprints, and if he's doing 10 sprints a day, he'll have plenty of carbohydrate to do that. If he has to, he could also burn fat. So so he's is not a good sprinting is not a good example. But So that's the point. So if you watch rugby players, for example, you can predict who's eating the high-protein diet because they cut and they don't have the subcutaneous fat and they look impressive. And the ones who are slightly filled out, they're the ones eating high carbohydrate diets. The best example would be the defensive players in American football who are gross and they have this visceral obesity and they're pre-diabetic and that's a real problem for them because they, they, 
and I still don't understand why they're still forced them to eat so much carbohydrate. I guess it's to be fat because they, the weight is a big issue in the, in the defensive players in American football. But if you want to be as as heavy as you can be, but not on fat, you know, not fat, then you need to eat a, a higher protein diet. It sounds counterintuitive, though. Uh, eating fat won't make you fat. Yeah, absolutely not. So, so the 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 reason is it's because what makes you fat is this thing, the brain. And that's people have to understand this. If you want to be thin, you've got to eat the foods that don't make you hungry, that satiate you. So the diet that mm. satiates is one is full of nutrients and not as many calories. Once you start trying to get nutrient-dense foods, sorry, lots of nutrients from vegetables, for example, you have to eat masses of them. And so you have a high carbohydrate intake to get the basic nutrients. And then that, that high carbohydrate diet forces you to over-secrete insulin and then causes you to become fat. That's the problem. But it all comes back to appetite. And I always tell people, if you want to be thin, you must find a diet that satiates you with the fewest calories. That's, it's as simple as that. And those diets are high in nutrients. They're nutrient-dense, and that's an animal-based diet. Uh, calories. I mean, are calories important? Uh, yeah, they are, but it's, got, it's confusing because uh, calories from sugar and calories from meat are different. They're going to have a different response in the body. Mm. And that's going to, the calories will store, you'll store them differently. And that's, there probably is a difference that a high protein diet, you waste calories. So, uh, but I'm not getting at course calories are important. If you're going to overeat calories, you are going to get fat. But the point is that the calories that you take in are what's really important. Are they nutrient dense calories or not? If they're nutrient dense, your appetite goes down and you will eat less subsequently. If they're nutrient poor, you will be hungry and you'll be eating six times a day, as the dietitians tell us. You know, that's the second law we say. First, you know, eat animal-based diet. Secondly, you only eat two meals a day, maximum. Maximum two meals a day. And on that, you can't help but lose weight and get to the weight that your body wants to be at. When I was growing up in school, they, they taught me that the, the, the food pyramid you know, it, it, it looks a certain way, and basically your three your three macro your your three macro foods are uh, a protein, fat, and carbohydrates. What you're suggesting is that the carbohydrate you can essentially remove from that and just end up with um, fat and protein. Is that is that correct? Yeah, you don't need carbohydrates. Uh, the body has no essential requirement for carbohydrates. You but you need fat and you need special proteins. No carbohydrates whatsoever. You can live without carbohydrates very, very successfully. But I mean, vegetables are not bad for you. So the, the answer is that vegetables are bad for some people, and that's not, not recognized. So the difference between mm. an animal and a vegetable is that an animal can run away. If you hunt it, it can run away, and that's its defense. The, the plant can't. It has to stay there. So it produces anti-nutrients to make sure that you don't eat it. And there are many plants have got anti-nutrients, and those are harmful to, the, to some people. Some people develop autoimmune disease in response to chemicals present in specific plants. And when you cut that plant out, they become very, they can get rid of their autoimmune diseases. And there That's are some incredible. Very, yeah, there are some very famous people who reported converting and cutting out all vegetables and reversing all these 
this disease. And the way they act is clear. What happens is they affect the gut lining, and the gut then becomes open. It allows proteins to get in, and those proteins then activate the immune response. So it's and that and that's point one and point two. But the problem with vegetables and fruits is that they've been engineered over the last hundred years to be more and more tasty, and to be more and more tasty, they've got more carbohydrates, more sugar, in and they them. look beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And that that's not what food looked like two hundred years ago. Bananas were tiny and bitter, and the same with apples. You wouldn't, you might have eaten half an apple, but it would, and you would have probably spat out the rest because it was so bitter. But they've been engineered to addict you to make you eat more. So, so people will argue, yeah, but um, uh, it's um, fructose. You know, it's it's a healthy sugar. Well, not really, because fructose causes fatty liver, and the big the big problem. And uh, basically, there's another uh, there's another book we wrote recently, which which is kind of a more simplistic approach to to nutrition and problems. And the answer is fructose causes what we call a fatty liver, and a fatty liver is part of this problem of insulin resistance and chronic disease. And the way it acts is very clear. And, and we. There are studies, Robert Lustig is my great hero friend, who's looked at fructose in children. And children eating lots of Coca-Cola, drinking lots of cola drinks and eating lots of sugar, get a fatty liver, which you can reverse within weeks by just taking out the, the fructose in the diet. So fructose was considered healthy because it didn't spike your glucose in the bloodstream. So yeah, you can lot, eat lots of fructose because you don't get this glucose spike. But where was the fructose going? It was being metabolized in the liver to fat. And that's the problem. And the only people who can get around that is if you're very physically active, you can burn the fructose. But if you're not physically active, eating a lot of fructose is a problem because you're going to get a fatty liver and all the downstream problems. By the way, the biggest cause of liver disease now is fatty liver from diet. It's not from alcohol. So alcohol used to be the biggest cause of cirrhosis of the liver. Now... A high fructose diet is the biggest cause of it. Really? Yeah. And that you don't you're not told that because that's not industry favorable comments. If we look at populations around the world and we look at where people are generally overweight and where people are generally fairly slender, what do we see? Well, I don't know whether you know the population like Japan are still, and the Asians are still fairly lean, but they are increasingly getting visceral fat which you can't see so we judge most of us judge people on the subcutaneous fat and that's what we we assess them as being fat but the real problem is the is the visceral obesity which makes the abdomen expand and i mean i look i just give up nowadays because when i go down to the shops i just see everyone has got visceral obesity and visceral obesity is the evidence that you've got insulin resistance and you've got hyperinsulinemia, and you're at risk of all these chronic diseases linked to to insulin resistance. Sorry, when you when you talk about that, that is that the fat that sits around your belly and around your belt? That's correct. That's the and in in in, in men in men in men and women. Yeah, but women tend not tend to they spared because if you score if you s store your fat in subcutaneous tissues, you're fine. And ironically, you know, one of the problems is that people become insulin resistant because they can't store fat in the subcutaneous tissue. So like I'm profoundly insulin resistant. I cannot store fat on my legs. I've got 
my legs have got no fat on them, and that's a problem because that promotes insulin resistance. So if you store a lot of fat around your buttocks and your thighs, you you can be fat without being insulin resistant, and you can be perfectly healthy. If you store a little bit of fat in your abdomen, in the liver, you're in, you're heading for chronic disease. So that's that's why it's so important, and we ignore that. We in South Africa we call this obesity the beer belly, and mm. the beer belly is is not a sign of health. That that you must treat that. You must get it down, or else you're going to have a shorter life and at increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and so on. Yeah, and we dementia. We, we, we brought up uh, men and women a moment ago. I just want to focus a little bit on that. Um, do men and women respond differently, generally, to carbohydrates? Yeah, that's, that's, that's an interesting question that we generally don't think so. We generally say that uh, high-carbohydrate diets are toxic for both men and women. The key is whether, where you store the fat. So there are some conditions, and if you, for example, we've discussed it, if you have a large buttocks and large thighs, and that's typically the way women store their fat. They are spared from the problem. But for both genders, it's if you store fat in the viscera, that's the problem. So what we're saying is that there are probably more women who can store fat subcutaneously, safely, than men. Men tend to store their fat in the abdomen, and that's the visceral obesity, and that's the cause of the, of the insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, cancer, etc. Uh you were talking about um, uh, diabetes and and the various risk factors involved with carbohydrates. I remember once upon a time you spoke about women not needing to worry about certain risk factors, or is it the other way around that they that they need to worry about certain risk factors more than men? Yeah. So the problem is this metabolic dysfunction that's the problem once your liver gets full of fat and your abdomen is full of fat that's the cause of the problem and i have a lovely diagram in this book and i'll look for it as we're talking and you know what worries me is so here's the the diagram i'm not sure that anyone can see it well you can see it quite well there mm. now the point about that that's what happens this is what happens when you overeat carbohydrates and you store them as visceral fat, you get all these abnormalities and they circle around and it's a vicious cycle. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And your health gets worse and your arteries get worse and you're going to have your stroke and your heart disease and your cancers. And you can't go to the doctor and he give you a statin drug because the statin drug's not going to reverse that. And that's the point. There is no drug that can reverse this condition. No drug can reverse the metabolic dysfunction and you're not screened for it so instead of when you go to the doctor and he oh your cholesterol is high you're at risk of heart attack that is nonsense what he needs to check is what's your metabolic status what is your glucose what is your insulin what's your triglycerides what's your hdl cholesterol what's your hba1c that tells us how pre-diabetic you are or diabetic you are and and what's your blood pressure and what's your waste measurement? And when you look at all those things, you say, right, we have to address all of these factors. And giving you a statin drug is a complete and utter waste of time. But I mean, it's high cholesterol and people are scared yeah, about dying. Exactly right. But you've got to be scared. Once your weight starts to expand, you should be scared. But no one has the courage to measure the waste and tell the mm. person, you have got metabolic 
dysfunction. I don't care what your cholesterol is. I worry what is your triglycerides, what's your, your insulin, what's your glucose, what's your HDL cholesterol, because that's a measure of your metabolic dysfunction. Now, let, let me just tell you that there's only one thing, there are, sorry, there are only two things that reverse that, a low-carbohydrate diet and exercise. That's it. You can reverse all these things. So, you know, I was thrown out of the profession for saying that type 2 diabetes is reversible. We now have absolute definitive proof that type 2 diabetes is a behavioral disorder. It's a behavioral disorder. And you cannot treat a behavioral disorder with medication. It doesn't work. You've got to change the behavior. And I'm a classic example. I followed a behavior pattern that we're all told to follow. Eat lots of carbs and run marathons, which I did. I ran 70 plus marathons. And I got type 2 diabetes. And only when I realized that I had to cut the carbs and change my diet, exercise pattern, perhaps, but that wasn't necessary. It was the diet that was a problem. I reversed my diabetes by changing my diet. That was it. And there's now absolutely convincing evidence. Yet, a guy was being evaluated, a medical colleague of mine was being evaluated, and one of the questions was, is type 2 diabetes reversible? And it said yes or no. And he typed yes, and the answer was no. That's what we still teach. Mm. So that, and that's, that's tragic. But you've got type 2 diabetes, and you can't reverse it. No, exactly. Well, I have. My glucose is, my fasting glucose is absolutely spot in the, in the right range. But for two days, if I eat a high-carbohydrate diet, my diabetes has absolutely come back. So I'm not cured, mm. but it's controlled. Because so, I'm profoundly insulin-resistant, which is probably a genetic condition, which I can't reverse. And it got worse with this high carbohydrate diet. But then when I went on the low carb diet, I reversed it. And it's really interesting because the first reports, which I've looked at carefully now for reverse of type 2 diabetes, were made in the 1940s. It's published in the scientific literature. Mm. But for various reasons, we treated type 2 diabetes with insulin and we missed the point that it's a reversible condition. You don't need the insulin. The incident prevented us understanding that this is a nutritional behavioral disorder. And we treated it as a medical condition. I mean, the, the irony is that when you have type 2 diabetes, you over-secrete insulin. And the treatment is to give you more insulin. That doesn't make sense. If you're already secreting too much yeah. insulin. Yeah. So you've What's... got to get rid of the reason for needing the insulin. And you need the insulin to, to try and preserve your blood glucose concentration. Well, if you're not eating carbs your glucose is going to be flat anyway. Was the low-fat revolution of the 1980s a disaster? Yeah, but it, does, it wasn't the 1980s. It starts in about 1900. And we can thank the Seventh-day Adventists for it because there was a lady whose name I'll come back to me. And this is absolutely established by many people that she had a vision that God spoke to her and said, humans must not eat meat because meat causes cancer and sexual deviancies and so on. And so that they started the, the Seventh-day Adventist and Lena, Linda Loma University, which is a vegetarian, vegan university. And they were obviously very much against meat. And the first person who got involved was a Mr. John Kellogg's, who you remember 
produced the Kellogg's cornflakes. And he started a sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, where all the famous people would go there and they would eat cornflakes. Unfortunately, his brother said, well, these cornflakes are great, but we're not making any money out of them. We've got to add sugar. So they added sugar and that became the Kellogg's empire. But the Kellogg's, that what happened was then the first dietitian for the American Dietetics Association was the person in charge of the Battle Creek Sanatorium Care, Dietitian's Care. They then took over the American Dietetics Association, was taken over by these people who were promoting an anti-meat, pro-vegetarian, pro-cereal grain diet. And that has not changed. And so every year that the dietary guidelines are changed, they're always controlled by the food industry who provide eight or nine of the 10 people drawing up the guidelines. They're all dependent for their funding on the food industry. And the food industry is an ultra-processed food industry, so that therefore we continue to advocate ultra-processed foods. But it, it goes back, her name was Ellen White in the 1900s, and John Ken, uh, the Kellogg's, John Kellogg's and the Battle Creek Sanitarium and their influence on the American Dietetics Association, which still happens today. So low fat has been a disaster. Absolutely. The, you know, the obesity epidemic begins in 1978. The dietary guidelines, the, the pyramid comes out in 1977 and 1978, the Americans start to get fat. And that's because they, they're eating more calories because this, the diet's not satiating and you take out the meat and the fat, then the protein and the fat, you're going to overeat and carbohydrates, you can eat more calories and they have Americans are eating a couple of 10 or 20 or 50 more calories a day and that's enough to explain the, the the obesity epidemic talk to me a little bit then about supplementation because i have a personal aversion to supplements yeah and i did too so i thought that uh, i felt guilty if i took a supplement you know i think this is a story that is still evolving and what the problem is that the same people who tell you that you must eat 50% carbohydrates and you and you can eat sugar in moderation are telling us that you don't need supplements. Well, I don't believe them for that. So therefore, I look at why shouldn't you take supplements? And I tell you, if the supplement industry was controlled by the pharmaceutical industry, you we would all be taking supplements. But the pharmaceutical industry makes sure that you don't take supplements because they want to sell you something else. And they want you to be ill anyway. So if supplements help, they don't want you to take them. So that's a personal opinion. We now know that the COVID-19 has exposed vitamin D deficiency as a major problem. Now, no one knew about it until we had COVID comes along. And then people who are, COVID, who are vitamin D deficient are more likely to have a fatal outcome. So that's very clear. Then we found that, gosh, there's so many people who are vitamin D deficient. Now, no one's telling us to, eat, to take vitamin D, despite the fact that we know it's protective to some extent against COVID. So if it's vitamin D, what else is there? that might be lingering in this diet that's deficient. So my view would be that the diet that with the ultra processed food diet that we're promoting is so nutrient poor that there have to be nutrient deficiencies. That is not just the high carbohydrates, it's because of nutrient deficiencies. Now that reminds me of Dr. McCarrison who went to India in the 1920s. He was sent by the Medical Research Council in Britain. And they said, you know, you look at the Indian population 
and their their health varies by region and their food varies by region he went to india and set up a laboratory there and he showed that there were nutrient deficiencies that were causing the different body shapes of mm. indian population the people in the north were the healthiest because they had they had traditionally a higher fat higher protein diet they ate more animals but the further south you came the more rice and wheat was eaten and the health of the population got worse and he was the first person to start describing nutritional deficiencies so that you could have a whole series of deficiencies a range of nutrients and then you would be you would look like that and you'd be you wouldn't be particularly healthy so for people so now that's the diet we've gone back to that's the diet of the poor indian people that we're currently eating it's a nutrient deficient diet now if mccarrison could show in the 1900s that this diet's deficient for humans then what about today but no one's really looking at it we're not looking at the deficiencies but i can tell you you know i'm 73 and i look around at the people who are eating the high carbohydrate high refined foods and not supplementing and they become osteoporotic and muscle they lose their muscle the osteoporosis is rickets no one recognizes it this is rickets in old people and if you look at the diet of people living in old age homes they are deficient in all the major nutrients all the major vitamins so would they need supplement absolutely but they would do better by just eating a better diet that that's the point so my point is that if your diet is deficient then you have to get the supplements added but it the more the better diet is an animal based diet because that's more likely to provide mm. you with all the nutrients but even then we don't know if that's ideal because we're not eating the way the traditional societies ate they would eat the whole animal they would eat the intestine they would eat the liver they would eat the kidneys they would eat the eat the pancreas which we don't eat so therefore there may be nutrients in those organs that we should be eating how do you know if you are deficient in something i think it's all swamped by this obesity so so if you're obese if you've got visceral obesity you are eating the wrong diet full stop and supplements ain't gonna help you've got to get back onto the right diet so we're really focusing on that population that 10 percent of the population are eating a proper diet the 90 percent the supplements aren't going to help they've got to get onto a decent diet but once you're on the decent diet how do you know that's a great question and i don't think we we have any clue about how you should assess that we, we just don't know would it be measuring all the vitamins would it be measuring hormones i don't know that we're doing that as yet i think the integrative medicine specialists are probably closer to looking at nutrition appropriately and measuring the right things mm. i'm not trained in that field so i'm not sure exactly what they're doing but in general, that's the type of doctors that seem to be more advanced in the way they manage patients. So what supplements, as a rule of thumb, are, are, are good to think about? Okay, the, the ones that I think that, that you can take with some degree of safety is vitamin D and vitamin K2. So the D3 and K2 are, you, you mustn't take too much because they, they, they store in your fat cells and you can overstore them. But I think those are the ones that are going to prevent the osteoporosis. And there's some evidence that they can influence arterial disease. So those are the two that I think are, are we getting to realize that they're important? If you're eating a, a, a low meat diet, you're going to be B12 deficient that, that you need. 
And there are some essential fats that perhaps could be added if you're not eating fish and, and dairy and meat. But that, you know, that, that's the problem. We, I can say with confidence K3, D3 and K2 are the two that will probably help you because the D3, you're likely to be D3 deficient. And the D3 and the K2 work together. You shouldn't take the one without the other. But, but that's it. We don't have strong evidence. Mm. Sorry, I should add magnesium. Magnesium is also deficient in the diet. For some salt. reason, the foods that... No, magnesium, not, oh, not salt. Magnesium. Uh, that, those are the, the kind of the three that, that, that I can justify scientifically. So the rest, we, just, we don't really know. You, you have to guess and try are multivitamins a waste of time? Um, yeah, because they kind of cover everything without covering what you really need. You'll find that they're probably a bit low in the D3 and K2, which is which would you'd need a higher dose. But I don't think there's any reason not to take them other than cost. So if you can afford it, you, it's mm. not going to harm you, but it may well not do much good. I didn't ask you earlier, um, but I'll ask you now quickly. One of the big arguments made for, for carbohydrates, particularly if you're an athlete or you're in the gym and you're lifting weights, or just in general, it gives you energy. If you don't take carbohydrates, where's that energy coming from? Thank you for asking that question because I've spent the last six months looking at this. And so what happened was, it's a long story, but uh, I've been fighting a group in, in Australia, uh, people who trained with me and uh, had and we diverted our interests in the 200, 2000. So we were all looking at fat as being the fuel for exercise. And then unfortunately, some of us uh, continued and others got attracted by the industry. And industry didn't like that story about fat being healthy. And so I've been looking back at the research and there were seven researchers in the world and there were seven of us who were pushing this carbohydrate story and we pushed it to death and I was one of them and so were my friends that we talked about who've, who've done amazing work that don't, I think they're great scientists, but they're just wrong. It's, you, know, you, you can be a good scientist and be wrong. So, so what happened to me was then I went through this carbohydrate conversion and then we started promoting the high fat diet. And uh, then that caused all sorts of problems. And then they used some of our research to say, no, the fat diet doesn't work. And they, they were over-interpreted the evidence. It was true. We, sh we provided one study showing that eating a high-fat diet for seven days impaired your performance a little bit. But seven days is too short to make any decisions. So anyway, what happens next is I get a phone call from a, from a colleague whose father runs the fire department in Cape Town. He's now in Pennsylvania. He says, Prof, we'd like to do a study of high carbohydrate diets versus high fat diets. Would you help us? So, so we do. And he's a brilliant scientist. He's technically fantastic. We did a beautiful study of people running five kilometers in time trials on the treadmill. And we repeated the test to make sure we did lots of testing. We didn't just have a one test and compare it. We compared lots of tests. And at the end of the day, there was no difference in performance. So these people, they ran a 5K on on a high fat diet 5k on a high carb diet after adapting for six weeks notice that eaten the diet for six weeks no difference in performance so more recently we went back to the data and we said well if the performance was equal 
then they must have been burning the same fuels. Mm. They must have been burning a lot of carbohydrate when they were fat adapted. Right. Because otherwise, so that was the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis was that, oh, we put them on the start, but it hadn't any effect. They just mm. burnt carbohydrate. And what did we find? The opposite. They're burning masses of fat on the high-fat diet and masses of carbohydrate on the high-carbohydrate diet. And the performance was identical. So this completely disproves that you have to burn carbohydrates when you're burning fat. We've taken it a step further, and we're now doing one-mile repetitions. And we're doing an interval session on people who've adapted for six weeks to a high-fat diet or six weeks to a high-carbohydrate diet. And the results are the opposite of what we expected, or they're early results. And they're confirming what we think, that it makes no difference whatsoever. You just burn what the body makes available to you, and your performance so, is the same. Now, just one last point. Sure. Sorry. Now, yeah, go those on. Athletes, those athletes we studied were better than 88% of all runners in North America. They wow. were not slow runners. They were not great. They're not Iliad Kipchoge. They're not the best in the world, but they're your recreational runner that you see running the 5K races. So, we estimate, therefore, that 88% of runners around the world do not need to eat high-carbohydrate diets to optimize their performance. So anyway, so to continue the story. Mm. So while we've done this research, I get invited to write an editorial for the Journal of Physiology. Now, the Journal of Physiology is pushing the high-carbohydrate story, and it's pushing this one particular researcher with whom we disagree. So she was asked to write the one bit, and I was asked to write the other bit. Now, I knew her whole history. I know exactly what she thinks. So I wrote my, without seeing what she'd written, I wrote my thousand words. And they said, no, 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 you're being too personal. You see, I said, no, no, it's not personal. I'm, this is the science. This is what she said, and this is what the science showed. So they said, well, rewrite it. So I rewrote it, and they came back, and they said, no, it's a disgrace. You're attacking her personally, etc." I said, no, no, I'm just presenting the science. And here's what she said, and this is what the science showed. That's not attacking her. That's attacking her opinion. So they said, well, we don't want, we're not interested. <laughs> so, so I got thrown off. And the reason I got thrown off was because the, the paper was so strong. Because there is absolutely no evidence that you need high-carbohydrate diets for exercise. That's it. The evidence shows it. And there are what we call meta-analyses of all the studies that have been done. They show it. So anyway, the next week I got an invitation to write an article for another journal. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back and look at everything I've taught and know for the last 30, 40 years. And I went back, and I went back into my book. The, this book, you know, this is the Bible of running. And it's the Bible of how you should eat a high-carbohydrate diet. And the law I went of running. Back, the law of running. I went back and looked at all these figures. And it just so happens that here's the, here's the figure. Now, I'm not going to explain it to you, but just to show you, so this is the figure in the book that, that holds the whole truth. The whole truth is in this figure. So what this figure shows is that if you have a high carbohydrate to diet before exercise, you perform much better. And that became the theory. And so we had this graph, which goes with it. And what this shows is that the more carbohydrate you have in the diet, the longer you can exercise for. And these are the two figures that are the basis of all that we teach about carbohydrates and exercise. It's these two figures. 
Now, I looked at this figure and I said, oh my gosh, we got it all wrong. <laughs> because there's something hidden on this figure, this figure, that no one had noticed, including myself, because here it is in the book. What's that figure for those who can't okay. see? So this is a figure of what happens to your glycogen levels as you're exercising and what happens to your blood glucose levels. Now, everyone said, you see, we'll focus on the glycogen in the muscle. And as you get tired, it's depleting. And when it's low, you're tired. And they ignored what happens to blood glucose. Now, we know that if your blood glucose drops during exercise, you stop exercising. And what they did was they ignored that. So they had two causes for fatigue in this graph, two causes. And they said, we'll focus on one and we'll ignore the other. So they said, well, we'll focus on the one, the muscle glycogen, and we'll ignore the blood glucose. It's not important because it's, we've been measuring blood glucose since the 20, 2020, sorry, 1920s. But muscle glycogen, we can now measure this in 1970s. We couldn't measure it in earlier. This is the new technique, and we're going to use the muscle biopsy. So when we started our science career, we, the first thing we did was bought a muscle biopsy and started biopsying everyone and, and studying these things, and we ignored the glucose. So when I saw this, I said, well, okay, they couldn't draw the conclusion that it was muscle glycogen depletion that caused fatigue because they didn't exclude the other cause. Mm. So then I started looking through the literature, and without exception, without exception, when you get tired, if there's a difference, let's say you take carbohydrates during exercise. If the carbohydrates don't work and they don't make you perform better, it's because the group who didn't take carbohydrate did not become hypoglycemic. They would have run out of liver muscle glycogen just as the, the intervention group, but their blood glucose stayed normal. So what was causing their fatigue? The falling blood glucose. And I went through it and I found 23 studies to prove that this was a comparison where people were fed carbohydrate and it didn't work and it didn't work because the group that they compared with did not become hypoglycemic in contrast if they became hypoglycemic they would always show a benefit for carbohydrate ingestion or carbohydrate loading before exercise so it's it became very obvious that it's the blood glucose that regulates everything. And there's a very important reason why that is. You've only got five grams of glucose, five grams of glucose in your bloodstream. And if it was not controlled, you could drop that to zero in two minutes of exercise. Within two minutes of hard exercise, you could deplete the, liver, the blood glucose and you would die of low blood glucose because the brain requires glucose for its metabolism. And the evidence is very clear that once your glucose starts falling, the brain says, whoa, we've got a problem. If we continue to run as fast as we can, you're going to deplete the blood of glucose. doesn't matter what's happening in the muscles. The blood glucose is going to fall and your brain's going to stop working. So the brain, believe it or not, doesn't try to kill you. So it says, aha, we must slow you down. And it inhibits your ability to exercise. And that's called the central governor model, which is the other model of exercise that I've developed. And it's absolutely clear. And I must give you the one example why I know this is true, mm. because anecdotes always help. So when I was training hard, I used to always do one ultra run, long run before the comrades, where I didn't take carbs. And 
So I ran one race when I trained very hard the whole week, and it was. Uh, a, sorry, it was for, for sorry, Tim. For those who don't know what the comrades is, yeah. it's an ultra marathon yeah. in South Africa. Yeah, correct. It's a ninety-kilometer ultra marathon. So I ran a fifty-six-kilometer ultra marathon as training, and I had a second, and I said to her, "Okay, listen, I'm going to get grumpy with about ten or fifteen k's to go, and here's the solution. Here's a drink with lots of carbohydrate, lots of sugar in it." And when I get grumpy, you give it to me. So predictably, uh, with 20 Ks to go, my running speed went down. I felt terrible. I felt I'm never going to finish this race. That's the symptoms of hypoglycemia for me, was that there's no way I can finish this race. It's too far. So I, so then she said, you need this drink. I said, I'm not taking that drink because you also lose the desire to, to correct the problem. So she forced me, as she'd been told to. And I took it. And within five minutes, I just... It was like I had rocket fuel, and I just stormed to the finish. And one of the best finishes I'd ever had, and I wasn't trying to race this race. And so once you reverse the hypoglycemia, that's there you go. And it's instantaneous. It's absolutely instantaneous, which can't mean that you re you've filled your muscle glycogen stores. So, so what we conclude is that you burn whatever your body's got, and you'll perform optimally. And if it's if you fat adapted, you'll burn fat. If you're carbohydrate, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and the idea that carbohydrates is essential is based on false information and misinterpretation. And uh, we we know now that there are many advantages to becoming fat adapted, particularly if you're doing ultra distance events. Are you suggesting, Tim, that if I prepare for one hell of a big deadlift this afternoon? Um, the power that's required for that will come from basically anything that's in my body. It's not necessarily from carbohydrate intake. It could be from uh, bacon and eggs and saturated fat. Yeah, that's difficult to answer because you will have muscle glycogen uh, enough to fuel those, those weights. So you will be burning muscle glycogen. The question happens is what happens if you were to repeat that 40 times? by which time you would have run out of glycogen, can you still produce that performance? And that, that would be the question. But for, for one or two, for five or 10 repetitions, you'll have plenty of carbohydrate for that. But I mean, you're, you're talking about two distinct uh, differences here, one being high impact energy and one being sort of slower, um, low grade energy. I mean, a long distance versus a short distance. Yeah require two different types of power well you see what the physiologist had said was no no if you're running a marathon you're running at high intensity and therefore you need carbohydrates so you're quite correct i understand that when we compare running a marathon to lifting a weight yes clearly a difference but the physiologist had said it doesn't matter it, whether you're lifting the weight or running a marathon at 75 percent of your maximum you still need to burn carbohydrates mm. and what we're showing that that's not true for the the second <clears> part's not true the first part might still be true. You might still need to have lots of carbohydrate for your weight training session. But the point is you will always have that glycogen when you start. And it depends if you if you do a lot of weight training, maybe you will run out of glycogen. And then the question is, would the muscle still be able to produce the force or not? That would be the question. And and I I don't see the evidence for or against that. So it's an open question. We're coming in for the final lap, if you excuse the pun. But um, <laughs> if you were to summarize everything um, for those 
new to the idea of low carbs, what would you what would you suggest? Don't wait till you're my age to discover that your nutrition is critical to your health. So I was fortunate I was raised on a high fat animal based diet because my mother was in the meat parents were in the meat industry in Britain. And so we always had lots of meat and and she raised me on offal. We used to have sheep brains and kidneys and livers. So I was very fortunate. And then I converted. And that's when my problem started. My running went downhill when I went on this high carbohydrate diet. I put on weight and ultimately developed type 2 diabetes. All I'm saying is that nutrition is the most important determinant of your long-term health. Of course, stress is important. And of course, sleep is important. And of course, exercise is important. But you can do, get all those three things right. And if you're eating the wrong diet, you're in trouble. And it's, it's tragic for me to see people who don't understand that. And they get these chronic diseases. And then they get the sugar addiction and the carbohydrate addiction. And they won't change because they're scared to give up the addiction. And they, their health will be impaired. So, and it's... so I'm, I'm trying to be an example of how hmm. you age. And I should be dead. That's an important point. My dad had diabetes for 10 years and was dead. I've had diabetes for 12, 13 years. It's in remission now. If it had not been in remission, if I was taking insulin, I would be 30, 40 kilograms heavier and I'd have arterial disease. I wouldn't be able to talk to you because I probably would have had a stroke. So those, for me, it's, this diet's been life-saving. But, but I, I'm typical of most people. You know, I'm insulin resistant. Most of us are insulin resistant. So, yeah. so please, please, please take it seriously. I'm not a quack. And the people mm. who are describing this diet are not quacks. My foundation is about to produce the first de- textbook on the low-carbohydrate diets. It's a textbook because we realize that if, if we're going to convert medicine, we must at least have a textbook. So that the doctors can't say, oh, but there's no evidence. We say, no, actually, there's lots of evidence here. It all is. And I can tell you the evidence is astonishing. And, and it's not just for your diabetes. It's for mental health. That's the one that's coming through more yeah. and more and more. That mental health is so strongly re- linked to your diet. And that taking the medications, just like taking the statin to prevent heart disease, is not going to work. Mm. Taking the medications for treating depression and other conditions, bipolar, they don't work, but no, nutrition might well work. Surprisingly, it's because we discount it. We say it yeah. can't be possible. But we daily see evidence of people who reverse their mental disorders by eating this diet. And you know what frustrates me about the COVID thing is that it's all been focused on the virus. And pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceuticals. Yeah. It's as if the human didn't matter. Mm. And I think that my approach has always been that I'm responsible for my health. And I make choices every single moment of the day, which impacts on my health. And what I see is happening is that people want you to give your health over to the doctor and the medical service and the pharmaceutical industry. And when you do that, you finish because they can't help you. It's what you do every day that determines your health. And that is not taking medication. That's not what's going to do. So you're absolutely right. We are making, we've got a captive population who believe that they must outsource their health to somebody else it mm. doesn't work terrible you have idea. to look after yourself health yourself and eating is where it starts and it's absolutely and then you add in the exercise and the sleep and all the other important things but as i've emphasized ad nauseum it starts with your nutrition i forgot to ask you earlier just quickly tim um about fat uh something i always hear is 
yes, fat's good for you, but it's the good fats. So what does that mean? That That's a great statement because the bad fats are the ones that they promote you to eat, the vegetable oils. Vegetable oils are highly toxic. And a lot of people think that many of the chronic diseases are linked directly to the increased vegetable oil intake. So the, the healthy fats are the ones that are produced on the farm. That's the ones you want. And you can add in coconut oil and you can add in olive oil as well. But the animal-based fats are incredibly healthy, whereas the, the industrially produced oils, like vegetable oils, are profoundly toxic. And you've, you've really got to get them out of the diet as much as possible. How do you find saturated fats in, in a vegetable diet? I'm, I'm guessing avos and coconut nuts. Yeah, that's correct. Coconut would be a good source. That's correct. But you still need some of the other ones that you find only in meat and fish, some of the other essential fats. So you're saying don't fear the fat when you're eating bacon and, and that kind of thing? Steak? Yeah, yeah, well, no, you must go for it. <laughs> you know, the, the, one of the first things I ever did when I converted my diet, I was interviewed uh, by Derek, the guy from MNET, that program, Carte Blanche. Derek Watts. So unbeknownst to me, he slipped in behind me and he put a very lamb chop there with all the fat on it. He said, so Tim, what are you going to eat on this chap? I said, on this chop. So I said, I'm going to eat the fat and throw the meat away. And that, now this was on carte blanche before all of South Africa. So you can imagine what, what outcome that led to. Where can people follow your work? The Noakes Foundation is where I put most of my effort now. And so you're welcome to go to the Noakes, Noakes Foundation on, on the internet. Uh, I was very active on Twitter, but I've cut back in the last month or so because just, I've just had enough of the, mm. the problems in the world. And it was just overwhelming me. And so I've, I've taken a break and I'm really enjoying the break. I would love to continue, but I was being censored and, and I knew what was going to happen next. They were going to cut down my accounts. And then people would say, Thank goodness Noakes is gone and I couldn't protect myself. So I voluntarily removed myself. I will eventually get back and I have a, a, a where I just talk about sports and I'll probably go back onto that Twitter handle in due course. But at the moment, I'm just enjoying doing the science and, and hoping the world can find a way out of the mess that we're in at the moment. I also forgot to ask you this question, but what are your views on water? Yeah, well, I wrote the definitive book, so I've got them all here, uh, and it's called Waterlogged, The Serious Problems of Overhydration in Endurance Sports, and this is a 30-year work, and uh, I was the first to describe a condition of overhydration in an athlete who nearly died, and subsequently we predicted that athletes would die, and they have unfortunately died, and they were being advised to drink as much as tolerable during marathons in order to optimize their performance and there was never any evidence that this is the case and we were able to show that in about 20 percent of people that's very dangerous because they have a genetic condition that restricts their ability to get rid of that water when they're over drinking during exercise they retain the water their brains swell and they die of problems so the problem is that for this 10 or 20 percent of the population who over drink during exercise they retain the food they don't pass urine and then they say oh you see i'm dehydrated i'm not passing urine so i must drink more and that fluid is retained and ultimately the brain starts to swell and the brain can't expand because it's in a rigid skull. 
and that the pressure rises, the blood flow reduced, and they die from respiratory failure. Sure. And and that happened. We predicted it would happen. It happened in about 14 or 16 runners around the world over the last 10 or 15 years. That's completely preventable. So, the key in water is to drink to thirst. That's and as long as you're drinking reasonably, you're fine. But it's people who drink more than a liter an hour for, for a period of five or six hours. They're in trouble. And the only place you really do that is running a marathon where you've been told to drink fluid. And there's mm. fluids available every kilometer or three kilometers. So it's very easy to drink a liter an hour for six hours. And that's enough to kill you. So drink only when you're thirsty and eat only when you're hungry. Don't snack. Correct. That's, that's how we were designed. And that's how all animals are designed. We're just mm. an extension of all the other animals. Tom Noakes, thank you for joining me again in the trenches. Thank you, Jim. Great privilege. And keep up the fantastic work that you're doing. You've got great bravery, and I really admire you for that bravery. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com. 